This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Sklina. And I'm your other host, Matt Sklina. And Matt, today is a real coup for the VREP community. We have David Green. He's, of course, the co-host of Bigger Pockets Podcast. He's also a nationally renowned author, agent, speaker, coach, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and real estate and loan broker. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, out of the Bay Area. Uh, and and we know him for a lot of reasons. We know him obviously through the Bigger Pockets podcast, but we also know him for his books. Uh, he's written two phenomenal books. The first book uh, being Long Distance Real Estate Investing: How to Buy, Rehab, and Manage Out of State Rental. And this is a book more so about systems. Yeah, I mean, what and it comes out in this conversation. I think it's super useful for people in Vancouver because it's basically he's in a very expensive market in the Bay Area, right? Uh, talking about looking for cash flow opportunities outside of his direct area and how that led to the creation of systems to manage multiple doors and cash flowing doors. So this is a, a very useful conversation, I would say, in that regard. But then he also has a, a book on the on the Burr method as well. He was a former police officer. He got into basically uh, buying, rehabbing uh, properties, renting them out, keeping them for himself. He's He had some doors and then he, he's evolved into what really has become this real estate mogul in the United States. And anyways, we're happy to have him here today. Yeah. Stay tuned for that. You're going to enjoy this conversation with David for sure. That is uh, without question. But what else do we got before uh, we cut to our talk with David today, Adam? Well, Matt, we are coming up on the holiday season here uh, in Vancouver and elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> but in Vancouver, it's 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 rainy. It's been cold. Uh, today is actually not too bad. A little bit of a break of, uh, of sunlight. But it does feel um, like there's a, a last spurt of activity, I would say, before what probably will feel like lockdown. Yeah, you know what? Uh, double lockdown, right? Holiday lockdown with the, the COVID lockdown. But, uh, you know, one thing I was thinking about in terms of what I'm missing this year, you know, I was drawing up a list because the last time we talked <laughs> about October and Halloween and how yeah. how that was different, mainly because there wasn't bowls of candy at the office. Right. And this year, I'm really upset about this whole Todd Talbot's <laughs> Covenant House party. That oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought you were gonna say, I was actually thinking about this. I don't think Todd's... Missing size 34 pants we we, we either we either didn't get invited to todd's right. party uh i could actually see todd doing like a zoom party which potentially would be well we didn't get the invite we but didn't uh, get the here, invite here's for the that. thing todd, todd talbot tt uh <laughs> is is a good friend of the program he usually does his covenant house fundraiser he he's had it at a variety of different venues over right. the years um the last one if i'm not mistaken was actually at was it Kohler? It was at it was at like a plumbing fixture spot. I don't I don't want to actually. Uh, I sh- we should probably 
Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. Yes, but it of was, course. It was, uh, <laughs> there were toilets, uh, soaker tubs, showers everywhere, and it was just a big party in the display center. Right, right. And uh, I'm not going to tell you who got caught in their suit uh, taking a shower, but it was Charles B. Lush. <laughs> <laughs> it's Charles V. Lush. That hundred percent. That was a good, that was good a end good, to the night. That was a good night. I I feel like that might have been two years ago. Was but that yeah, two that years was, ago? That was I, that was a lot of fun. But you know what I was thinking of? So I was thinking on the way uh, yesterday. Actually, I was driving. I was thinking, man, Todd Talbot's party. Like we're right. missing this. this. Is really disappointing. Uh, and but I was thinking Covenant House. You know, during COVID, this is probably a year in which they're uh, everybody. They're, they're every hurting. Chari- they're hurting. Every sure. charity needs as much help as possible this year. So I went on their site yesterday, and uh, I want to bring this up because usually our donations flow through Todd Talbot. Um, but right now, until I believe it's the end of the year, maybe the twenty fifth of December. Yes, a few anonymous donors are tripling. Every donation made to Covenant House. Wow. So we got basically the next month to donate uh, as much as you can. And your donation will be tripled. So I thought that was worth bringing up because uh, that is definitely, you know, if you're going through your charities and you're like, which one, uh, you know, it, I mean, there's many charities. There's no, you sure. can say sure. nothing wrong with any charity, but man, helping. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a, the odd critique you could give to certain <laughs> charities. Yeah. But but, but most are, are kind-hearted. Yeah, most are kind-hearted. I always look for people patting their payrolls. I really <laughs> get upset when my, when my charity dollars don't go as far. But, but in this case, helping uh, teenagers, young people on the street, um, right. it's it's hard to fault Covenant House, that's for sure. No, it's They're actually, doing God's work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and, and I think, uh, shout out to Todd. I know he's he's been really active. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a Zoom call taking place, but uh, I'm sure he's going to be, I'm sure he's going to be getting people to donate and he does some really good work this time of year as well. So shout out to Todd Talbot. Um, and shout out to Covenant House. And shout out to Covenant House. And uh, Matt, before we get to our interview today, uh, we got to mention, we had Corey Wright in the studio helping us out as the co-host oh, right. this week. And uh, he is involved in this interview with I David Green. I think he heard David Green was coming on the show and and yeah, he came in uh, masked up and, uh, and yeah. came in to help. And he didn't even charge us for his time because God knows we couldn't afford it. <laughs> I've seen those shoes. Some of the nicest <laughs> shoes in the game. Corey Wright. Uh, anyways. But, but maybe we should cut to our talk with David Green. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. 
Register today at marcon.ca slash sonhaus. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with David Green, co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast and author, agent, speaker, coach, entrepreneur, and real estate and loan broker in California. How are you doing, David? I'm good. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you all? Very well, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I can't imagine you have a lot of time with the number of hats uh, you're currently wearing. Well, that's true. Time is a pretty valuable commodity, but at the same time, when you have an opportunity to get to play in this many different real estate spaces and you love it as much as a, as much as a bunch of real estate nerds like us do, it's hard to say no. <laughs> David, can you maybe start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I would say maybe I can just start with the hats that I wear. I'm a real estate broker and a loan broker in California, in the United States. And I'm a former police officer. That's kind of where I got my start. I worked a lot of overtime. I bought rental properties. And that was really how I learned real estate, just knowing it's it's going to be rough to be a cop for my entire career. So I wanted a backup plan. Started saving money and got really good at playing defense and just making money and not spending it. And then investing that into real estate, learned how to rehab houses and find the areas where my money would go the furthest. California is a very expensive market, much like yours. So I was kind of forced to be creative to find other places. And then eventually got my license and started selling houses and then became a broker. And now we do loans as well. And uh, I flip houses. I, I got connected with Bigger Pockets and fell in love with that company. So I ended up co-hosting their podcast with Brandon Turner. And every week, week we do the same thing you guys do, where we share the gospel of real estate to the masses and <laughs> help other people achieve some of the awesome things that we got to from real estate. And uh, I run a private mastermind where I coach the members how to build wealth and basically be more successful. And I've written a couple of best-selling books on real estate. So really, real estate's been very good to me. And I like to share with others, you know, how I did it so they can have a similar experience. So I'm it's interesting. I feel like we've had a couple other cops or former cops on the on the on the show before. Uh, it sounds like while you were while you were in that former life, you you were getting involved in in real estate. What what excited you about real estate? Kind of off the right off the hop. You know, I backed up into it. I had no idea that I was going to be a real estate investor. I just bought a house because a friend was going to buy it. And he got accepted into Bible college and he had to leave town and he was going to lose his earnest money deposit. So I just thought I'd buy this house and rent it out myself. I didn't really have too much of a plan. And then once I did it, I realized that oh, I got a property manager. It's not so bad. And then next year, another house came up for sale down the street from my mom's and she told me about it. And I just thought, well, let's buy another one. I have some money saved up. And I found myself in the middle of it. I think the reason police officers themselves tend to get into real estate investing is there's a maybe a decisiveness I would describe that when you get into that position, you realize that you're often making really big decisions in a second or two that you just don't have time to analyze from every single angle, like maybe an accountant could. I'm sure if you're an engineer or an accountant, you could spend half your day looking at one problem 
to try to make give it the perfect answer, but people die when you do that in law enforcement. So you sort of develop this familiarity and comfort with this may not be the very best decision, but it's better than not making a decision. And then I think as your brain starts to adapt to that way of thinking, real estate investing, all the things that stop people from getting started aren't as scary to us because we've been making a living from moving forward and taking action and improving on the next time as opposed to trying to get everything perfect right off the bat. And and were those first couple of deals or houses that you, you purchased, were they in the, the San Francisco area or were you – because you've written a book about long-distance investing – um, but presumably those were right. It sounds like that was, those were local. Were they, were they in the Bay area? They were about an hour East of the Bay area in an area, San Joaquin County, where most people that work in the Bay area live. So that's like a commuter area. And I also got started at a really good time. It was 2009 when I bought my first house. So we had a ton of foreclosures. I had a relatively stable job with law enforcement. So I could buy properties because my income was still really steady. I really didn't move out of state until 2013, 2014, when we started to get a recovery. And that was my first exposure to how fast the market turns when it does. It wasn't like a couple of years to get better. It was literally one springtime. <laughs> 2013, the springtime came. Everything started selling $30,000, $50,000 over asking price right off the bat. And within three months, it was too late to buy rental properties. And I learned, okay, if I'm going to buy them now, I got to go somewhere else. So I think this is like, this is a classic example of just real estate investing. And I think people up here in Vancouver, and you've probably seen it down there in California, that they look at the marketplace on what we've experienced over the past 10 years, and they don't buy something if it's not going to double in two or three years because they think it's broken. And I think when you go back to the classic example of just investing in tangible assets and having someone else pay your rent over the years, when markets turn, this is the success story that comes out of it. Yeah, thanks. That's a really good point. I, I think that sort of comes back to the point I made earlier where a lot of people don't take action because they're looking for something perfect. Exactly. Hey, if it doesn't double in six years, why do it? But what I was thinking when I'm making decisions is, is this, would it be better to make this decision or not make this decision? Would it be better to buy a house or not buy a house? Okay, it's going to cash flow. Rather than saying, was well, it going to cash flow 300 instead of 200? And getting caught in the weeds trying to find the perfect property, I would just say I'd rather have this house than nothing. And I can make that money back in six months or whatever to reinvest it again. So I guess you could say I started just consistently looking for base hits instead of trying to hit home runs. But I mean, to use that baseball analogy, anyone who plays baseball knows you don't look to hit a home run. You just get the right pitch and that's what happens. Well, traditional real estate investing is I would buy a house or a commercial property. I would put down you know, whatever my down payment was and the tenant would then pay my mortgage for me over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And if I sell the house for more than I bought it for down the road, I win. And people have got this, this, this notion now that if I buy it for 100 grand or 200 grand, if it's not worth 400 grand in two years later, it's broken. Why hasn't someone else bought it? And it just goes back to the fundamental roots of why people should invest in real estate just from day one. Yeah, what I tell people is it's a get-rich-slow game. Okay? <laughs> this is like planting a tree. Nobody is excited about planting a tree. But I've never heard a person who's, who's eating fruit from a tree that was planted 20 or 30 years ago that's mad that someone else planted it. That's a, that's a great uh, metaphor, analogy. Yeah. So, so David, can we talk a little bit? There's a lot of people right now uh, li- listening that 
are working in their in their day jobs and they're trying to do what you've successfully done. They're trying to transition out and and maybe become a uh, a real estate investor full time. Can you talk a little bit about your strategy? How you kind of um, uh, uh, made an outline for your for for kind of moving forward and transitioned away from being a police officer to a full time real estate investor? Well, the first thing people have to understand when they're in a job, if they're listening to a podcast like this, they probably don't love their job. Maybe they like it, but they don't <laughs> love it. That's why they're looking for something else. Okay. And one of the traps that you fall into when you're not happy in life or in a relationship, especially at jobs, is you start treating yourself to things that are not going to help you accomplish your goal, but they make you feel better in the moment. So those trips like out here, like people that are flying to Las Vegas to unwind from the week that think that this is what I got to do to stay in the game are really just burning their chance of ever getting out of it. You're working five days to live for two and it's a terrible habit to get into. So if you're listening and you don't love your job, the first thing you think that you have to understand is you actually have to work harder to save money. It's going to be even harder for you to get out of it as opposed to, well, I don't like it. So I'm just going to focus on the next time I can go treat myself with retail therapy. So playing defense, is huge because most things in life that are going to put you in a better position, maybe it's, maybe it's taking a sales job instead of a W2 job. Um, or by that, I mean like a, a full-time job that somebody else is paying you an hourly wage where there's a little bit more uncertainty, but there's a much higher upside. Maybe it's being a real estate investor where you're going to benefit from all that appreciation in the future and your cash flow is going to grow over time, but you're not, it's not going to get you out of where you are right off the bat. When you keep your own expenses really low and you live beneath your means, you can make these moves and take what we would call risk without it actually being risky. That's the first thing I would say to people who are in a position that they don't want to be in is you got to tighten your belt more. You have to save more money. You have to avoid buying that brand new car and buy a used car so you can keep saving that money and put yourself in a position where you can start investing in assets without having the fear of, well, what if something goes wrong paralyzing? That's a a great point. One that we don't actually talk that much about, uh, uh, kind of that beginning steps, uh, especially in markets or cities like where you live and where we live that are are very expensive. Maybe thinking a bit about... um, uh, your the book you wrote, long distance real estate investing. Uh, I think it's it's appealing to a lot of people in Vancouver this idea of long distance real estate investing because prices and cash flow opportunities outside of uh, our own backyard are are a lot more attractive. Can you talk a little bit about how you transitioned from you know owning a couple of doors in your backyard to to thinking about investment strategies outside outside the state or outside your area of uh, where you, you knew the streets? Yeah, once I had a couple, maybe three houses under my belt, I started to recognize that every time I picked up another one, I was just doing the same thing. I would go find a real estate agent that could help me find the deals. And then after that, I would go find a property manager that would tell me what it would rent for and if it was a good area. And then I'd find a lender who'd get me pre-approved. And then I'd find a contractor that would give me an idea of what it would cost to fix it. And I just started to recognize that this pattern is constantly occurring. And really, when people would say, well, what about this or what about that? My answer was always, that's one of those four people's jobs. I would ask them. I wouldn't even need to know what the answer to that is. I just need them to know the answer. 
so when I wrote the book long distance and real estate investing, what I really kind of built it on was this concept of a core four that you need to find in any market. And once you find them, those people can answer all the questions that come along to real estate investing. So if you're looking for cash flow and you're in an expensive market, the reason it's really hard is that rents don't tend to keep pace with prices. When you get a $700,000 house, it's not going to rent out for $7,000 a month. And that's because if someone could afford that, they would just go buy their own house. They wouldn't be renting it from you. So as an investor, our, our entire really asset class is built on the backs of the tenants. We need, that's our, that's our client. That's the only person that's helping us pay the bills. They're paying the rent. So you have to find an area with a strong tenant demand. A lot of people want to rent houses, a solid employment base. You don't want to go somewhere like Detroit, uh, Michigan, where the auto industry was. And when that tanked, the entire city tanked. You want to have sort of a diversified pool of employment and where the houses themselves are right around 1% or they'll, they meet the 1% rule. So if you buy a house for $200,000, it can generate close to $2,000 a month for rent. Once you've identified that market where you want to invest and there's tons of them, then you start looking for those four people in that market, the core four. And once you have that in place, it's just a matter of analyzing the deals, getting the information back from the core four and deciding which one you want to move forward on. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the, this idea of the core four and unpack that a little bit and how you actually uh, sort out the, the good from the bad? Well, the first thing that I want to find is, is an agent. And the reason I want to find the agent first is their business is typically built on the backs of closing deals. And everybody else in the industry tends to get their business from the agent. Lenders don't really go talking to people, knocking on doors, saying, hey, do you want to refinance the house? Lenders call real estate agents and they say, hey, can I service your client? Contractors don't go knocking on doors. They go to real estate agents and say, hey, when you have a client that needs a remodel, give me a call. So agents tend to know all the relevant players. They know the people that you need to make a deal work. So if I go find myself a top producing agent who I know is pretty good at their job, takes it serious, runs it like a business, not like a hobby, they're going to have a higher likelihood of knowing which lenders are better to work with for investors. Who's the lender that actually works really hard to figure out the problem instead of throwing up their hands and saying, I guess we can't do it. Who's the handyman that's bailed them out before when they got a bad inspection report and they need someone to come in and do the work. Uh, who's the property manager that they've gone to when they have a client who is uh, renting a property and they need a question on what's the rent going to be. They, they're more likely to have those connections. And when they're your realtor, those become your connections too. So that's typically the first piece I want to find. Once I get them, they'll usually put the other pieces in place for me. So, so David, just thinking about kind of monitoring the, the various markets in the U.S. and even right down to like the neighborhood, um, clearly before you find the agent, you have to figure out which market you're going to be investing in. How do you kind of monitor the markets and, and, and how do you decide where you want to invest? Well, the first thing I do is I look for a target-rich environment, and that's in the book. So if I'm looking to flip houses, that's going to look different than if I'm looking to own buy-and-hold real estate. When you're flipping houses, you want a very low day-on-market number, meaning there's a lot of demand. You want high price points because that equals higher margins. And those granite countertops cost the same if you put them in a million-dollar house versus if you put them in a $75,000 house. If you're looking for rental property, 
the number one metric that you want to look for is going to be that 1% rule. Do I have a lot of properties that are going to rent for around 1% every month of what it costs to own it? Uh, David, so I mean, on Bigger Pockets, you guys talk about a lot of different strategies, and, and we've just kind of covered a few of them. Um, obviously, it sounds like you're doing a lot of renovations. Are you are you implementing the Burr uh, method? Is that kind of uh, what 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 you prefer to do, or are you more buy and hold, or or is it a, a combination of both? Well, the Burr method is a method I wrote. That was the second book I wrote was the Buy Rehab Rent Refinance Repeat book. Because I realized that working six months to nine months to buy one property was just killing me. It's really hard to come up with that much capital. And if you want to do this at scale, you got to learn how to recycle your capital. So what I started to look for were properties in an area that would meet the 1% rule. That would be southern states in the United States. So Florida, Georgia, maybe some of the Carolinas, Arkansas, kind of those areas. And I'd try to find something that when I was done would be worth about $120,000. We call that the after repair value. And I knew that if I could buy it and rehab it and be all in for $90,000, that when I went to refinance it, the bank was going to let me borrow 75% of that 120, which was 90. So I typically found my sweet spot was going to be paying around 60,000, trying to get a rehab for around 30,000. And if I hit those numbers and it came in at a value of 120, I could buy the property, fix it up, add value to it, get 100% of my capital back, but still have 25% equity in the property. And then I'd have that 90,000 that I could then go buy the next house with, which was a whole lot better than needing to save another, you know, if I had just bought the place for 120, that's a $24,000 down payment plus a 10 to $15,000 rehab saving $40,000 took a lot longer than just refinancing and getting my money out and buying the next one. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. 
If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. And, and. Just thinking like, so you're, it sounds like you're focused on the Southern states, right? And you mentioned a bunch of different states, let alone cities in those states, let alone neighborhoods in those states. Um, you know, you talk about in the book um, how to how to basically assess neighborhoods. Can you talk about, you know, you're looking at multiple markets uh, and assessing these markets fairly quickly. Um, how are you, how are you isolating markets that are very attractive and and how are you uh, understanding kind of where they are in their their own kind of local market cycle and and the dynamics that go into that market? I mean, presumably the core four is kind of a crucial component there, but but can you talk a little bit about that? Well, if I'm being honest, part of why people have a hard time getting going is they're doing too much of that. <laughs> they're trying to say. Uh, uh, every market I could invest in, which is the absolute best one, and they're getting lost in this data, and then they don't buy a house. So if you buy a property that appreciates at 10%, and I buy one that appreciates at 5%, but my deal had 40000 of equity in it and yours didn't, it takes you a very long time before you make that $40,000 back that I did. And during that time, I probably bought 10 to 15 more of those. So I think part of what I did was I quit trying to find the perfect market. And instead, I looked for a solid market, and I looked for the best deals that I could find in that market. And when I found that there was too much demand, too many other people had said, ooh, this is a really good market, they want to go there, I went and found somewhere else. I let them fight over all those deals that everybody was looking at on Zillow. So the things I do look for are that 1% rule. I want to see positive population growth. It's very easy to find. You can get that out of the U.S. Census Bureau. So I want to see more people moving there that are moving away. And then I talk to the experts, the agents, the property managers, and I say, what type of jobs do people have who live here? Okay. Uh, I don't want to hear they work in the hospitality industry or they work in the tourism industry that are very sensitive to macroeconomic factors. I do want to hear they work in healthcare. They work in the tech industry. If I know the types of jobs that people that live in those cities are the types of jobs that are seeing wages increase the most, then the property values are going to increase along with it. And they're going to be able to support higher rents in the future. And if that's the case, and there's a lot of people that end up moving there, there's going to be limited inventory, which is going to be even better for me once I already own something. So I really stress, don't try to, it's kind of like when you hear stock people that tell you don't try to uh, out-trick the market or outsmart the market. You buy index funds and you wait. Real estate's very similar to that, but you do want to avoid buying in a bad area. So that's why I'm saying I don't buy anywhere that's dependent on one source of employment. If this is a coal mining town, and that's it, everybody that lives there works in the coal mines, I wouldn't want to buy there because one small shift in macroeconomic factors can ruin your employment base. So, so do you worry about timing the market? No. And the people that worry about timing the market um, typically either lose money or don't make money. 
there are certain times where my criteria are looser and tighter. But I don't think timing the market is wise almost at all. If you can buy a property that cash flows well, that gives you a better return than elsewhere, and you have a reasonable expectation that rents will continue to rise, 15 years later, you look really smart, whether you time the market perfectly or not. Uh, And another thing that makes it really hard to time the market is that operates under the assumption that when the economy is good, prices go up, and when the economy is bad, prices go down. And part of what we're seeing in America at this point is, and I don't know if Canada works the same way, but my assumption would be if it doesn't, it it will be, is government stimulus programs. Every time we hit what should be a recession, which is sort of like a forest fire that clears out all the bad ideas, it clears out all the bad companies and the bad choices that we're making, creates opportunity for new, better companies to spring up. We just spend a bunch of money, pour more cash into the economy, keep everything going and uh, create inflation. So if you looked at America, we're going through COVID-19, we're going through what should be a horrible economy and our markets are just carrying forward. But when we shut everything down, we started paying some people more than they were making to work just to stay home. So not a lot of people missed their rent payments. And I'm not making a political point here. What I'm saying is that if you try to time the market, you might find that it just doesn't go down. That inflation keeps occurring. And what that really does is take the cost of inaction and make it even more expensive. You know, I, I, the underlying theme here is uh, avoid analysis paralysis. Uh, I was going to ask you what your, your number one piece of advice is for aspiring investors, but I, I, it's pretty clear to me, um, you know, from that fruit tree analogy uh, right along uh, the entire conversation that that uh, stay active uh, is is kind of the the key message here for for our listeners well what stops people from moving forward is typically that they are afraid of what's going to happen if the market tanks after they bought so there's two ways you can get hurt if the market tanks one is opportunity cost you could have bought a house much cheaper if you'd waited two years when prices dropped than what you than what you paid for if you buy at the at the at the top, which is sort of a stock perspective on investing. You try to buy low and sell high. And the second way you get hurt is if you can't if you actually lose the property. So that same property I told you about that's worth 120, if it loses half its value and it goes down to 60, people are afraid, well I just lost money. But when you're in, in real estate investing, you sort of, you learn that that's not really that bad, that that $120,000 house that goes down to 60, I just, my payment didn't change. The rent coming in didn't change. Really, my experience was not any different, that the only time that I would actually have lost money if the market goes down is if I sold the house. So there's this really cool current concept with Real estate investing that I tell people is like when you're climbing a mountain, it's like a belay. So as the market goes up, it's like you climbing up this mountain. And everybody's afraid of, well, what happens if it, if it drops and I fall? But the rent you have is like this belay attached to your waist that stops you from falling. It holds you in place so you can keep your property until the market comes back. And stocks don't work like that. You're not getting paid if you own Apple and Apple loses half of its value or, or something like that. So it's one of the reasons why I don't try to time the market is I don't think I'm smart enough to know what everyone's going to do. 
I don't think I'm smart enough to know how politicians will respond to negative market factors. If they create more stimulus, then I looked foolish waiting. I just went even higher. Um, and I know that as long as I buy an area with good rental demand, the rents are going to sustain me during the bad times. So I don't have to time the market. Now, I would say when I'm in, an, in a market where I feel like everybody else doesn't want to buy, I think you should be more aggressive. You should buy more properties during that time. But I wouldn't say only buy during those times because you usually don't know when they're going to come and sometimes they don't. David, um, maybe just kind of shifting gears a little bit here, like thinking about the role that education plays in your investment strategy and in your business overall, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, about uh, ongoing education and and how like are you kind of um, are you are you are you one of those people that's kind of constantly um, involved in in courses and reading and ongoing education? I don't. I think that um, how do what I want to say this when you're reading and you're educating yourself on real estate investing, that's where everybody starts. They should absolutely do that. I'm not deterring anyone from doing it. But you do get to a certain point where reading more about how to do whatever, let's say manage a property, starts to net you diminishing returns. When you've done, it's like a weightlifter who's really good at lifting weights. Of course, they're going to keep reading books, but they're not going to get the same thing out of it as when they were brand new and they knew nothing. And reading a book could have stopped you from lifting the weight wrong and injuring yourself from six months. So I tend to learn more by doing and by teaching. So as a real estate broker, my clients are coming to me with tons of questions. What am I going to do if this happens? What about that? It forces me to be on top of my game as far as knowing what's going on in the market. And that's kind of why when you guys ask me questions about real estate, I'm answering with economic-based answers. Because a lot of how you make those decisions are determined by what is going to happen in the big picture as opposed to just the small. And then hosting a podcast where everybody in the country is looking up to me to know what do I do in every single situation that forces you to stay sharp too. It forces me to talk to other investors. It forces me to look and see which strategies are working right now and which are not. And maybe more importantly, what mindset works right now and what doesn't. Cause when I got started, it was at the bottom 2009, 2010, everything had just crashed. If you had cash, you were going to make out well. If you didn't, you weren't. And a lot of people have kept that mindset. They're waiting for the next crash. And they think that they're going to see it by prices dropping on homes. And again, this, is, this differs based on whatever the, the political environment of a different nation is. So if, if someone in Venezuela is listening to this, my advice wouldn't be nearly as relevant as it would be if they're in the United States. But if the government doesn't let prices correct, it doesn't let people foreclose, it takes measures to stop that. And the investor is waiting to see prices drop before they jump in. What happens is inflation just keeps on going and going and going, and they end up losing money. That cash that they're sitting on becomes worth less. Now, if prices are going to drop and you jump in early, yes, you could get hurt. So from what I found is real estate investing is not just about knowing how do I rent a house? How do I pick a house? How do I pick a market? It's sort of comparing real estate to all of the other investment vehicles that you have available to you and asking yourself, which is the best use of my capital? And even if you buy high at the real estate market, it's going to outperform stocks almost every time. It's going to outperform most other things you could look at. 
and it's going to be safer because that rent check that's coming in is keeping you afloat regardless of what the value of the asset itself is. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. David, that's that's really good advice. Um, maybe just uh, uh, one of the f- final questions we have for you. What is a bad advice that you hear in our industry all the time? Oh, that's a really good one. Okay, so when it comes to real estate, some bad advice would be only looking at is the property going up in value. That's how amateurs look at real estate. So in 2002 through 2006, when we had our huge run-up, you had people that knew nothing about real estate buying houses. And if you said, well, what was it going to cash flow? This is after they lost it. Every one of them said, what's cash flow? (laughs) They they didn't understand like even the, the small fundamentals of what they were doing. They just looked at it and they said, well, if I buy it now and it's worth more later, then I'm really smart and I did really good. And they they didn't understand that the reason that the assets were increasing in value is because bad loans were being given that made it really cheap and easy to own real estate. But that was they weren't sustainable. In a couple of years, they were going to reset. So the first mistake would be only looking at what is it going to be worth later after I buy it? And that's all. If you're not in a financially strong position and you buy a house in Toronto or Vancouver, and you lose a thousand bucks a month to own it, and it doesn't appreciate fast enough, you may find yourself running out of money before that house ever appreciates. That's a terrible position to be in. I'd rather see people buy properties that go that make them money every month, and then maybe they just don't appreciate it as fast as they had hoped. But you won't lose capital by doing that. Um, another, I would say, piece of bad advice is when someone says, you got to do everything yourself, because you don't. There are so many professions within real estate that are designed to help the person who owns the property. The realtor helps them sell it. The lender helps them finance it. The property manager helps them manage it. The contractor helps them fix it up. The title and escrow company helps manage the the changing of title. There's so many things. So you'd be much better off to build your skill set around finding people you can depend on that are honest, good business people than you would trying to learn every single element of real estate investing, thinking you're saving money. And this is a common problem I see from people who don't like spending money. They'll say, I'll learn to do it myself. And of course you can. You can learn how to do law and represent yourself in court and save on attorney fees. You can learn how to fix your car and save on mechanic fees. (laughs) You can learn to be a doctor. I mean, you can learn anything but is that the best use of your time when you can pay somebody else to do it and focus on something else? And I just strongly encourage people to bring that same wisdom into investing in real estate. Sure, you can save 7 or 8% of your rent by managing it yourself. But how many mistakes are you going to make? One month of vacancy because you didn't get someone in there as fast erases two years of those savings some of the time. So. Mm-hmm. That's another big mistake I would advise people. You're so much better to find good professionals and then learn from them as opposed to trying to learn it all yourself. Uh, fantastic, uh, fantastic points. 
maybe um, a couple more questions before we let you go. We know you're a, a very busy guy. What is one piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Uh, when I was 18, I was way more worried about what I earned than what I learned. So I would work all weekend at some restaurant, busting tables to make an extra $60 over the weekend or whatever it was, and not pay attention to what I was learning. I stayed in this little bubble that I understood, and I tried to maximize it. I should have been taking every job I could get, learning from every smart person I knew, exposing myself to as many things as I could, not worrying about what I was making in that moment to find where I was really going to thrive. So I had an opportunity when I was, I was about 20 and the top real estate agent in town had heard of my work ethic and had called me directly and said, Hey, I heard you're a really good kid and you work really hard. Do you want to come learn from me? And I said, yeah. And I started working for him and I hit a point where I could no longer keep up with college, him, and the restaurant job. And I let go of him because I thought that was the least certain or secure. He retired from real estate two years later, had no one to hand the business to, just sold everything he had, bought a couple of investment properties, moved out of town, retired at 40 years old, never touched a thing. That whole empire would have been mine. So everything I'm doing now, I would have got you know a 15-year head start on if I had a different mentality when it comes to risk and uh, trying new things and not always going for what I thought was safe. So I'm very grateful for where I am, but I know if you put me in the same position 15 years earlier, how much further along I'd be at this point, how much more I'd have to share and give with other people. So that's what I would tell young people is make enough money to be responsible. Don't go into debt, but don't worry about whatever you're making right now because what you're learning is going to determine your earnings later in life. Great advice. No kidding. David, what's something you've bought over the last year or two for under $1,000 that has changed your life in a positive way? I bought a software for my real estate agent company called Brivity that helped my employees manage transactions, that helped us manage our database of clients, that created a follow-up system so we stopped making mistakes. Nobody on my team anymore has to remember anything. They just have to remember to make a task in that software. <laughs> and it, it functions like your brain for you. And that has led to, you know, like over a million dollar return just from mistakes not being made, people being followed up with, organizational things. It was something that took a skill we already had and helped make it better. Do you want to text that website to us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once you once you do business with something like that, you can't imagine what it would be like to do it without it. You know, it's like comparing taking modern weaponry and going back into the 14th century with people that were using like, you know, swords and stuff like that. <laughs> um, maybe maybe as a final question while we have you David, um do you, is there a market right now in the US that you're you're really excited about kind of moving forward? Um okay, so be, and again, I'm going back to the political thing because that's how people make decisions. California where I live currently has the highest state income tax in the entire country. So if you live in this state, you pay an extra 13.5, I believe it is, percent of your income to the state. That's now being proposed to be raised to almost 17%. So I know you guys are probably used to higher taxes, but we tend to 
not have them quite as high here. So what happens is a lot of people in California that have good money are going to leave and go to areas without state income tax. So I think the smart people are looking ahead and they're seeing Californians are going to be taxed more. They're going to retire and leave. What are the states with no state income tax? Now, of those states, which ones have a climate most closely related to California? Now, of those states, which one have properties that meet the 1% rule? And once you find it, that's where I would look into investing. Because I think a lot of people are going to be moving there. So Florida and Tennessee are two of the states, I think, in our country that you're going to see a lot of migration to. So for your listeners, I would just ask myself similar questions to that. What are people liking and not liking about the direction that the country's heading? How are they going to respond to put themselves in a better situation if things change that they don't like? And you just get there first. I don't know if you guys are sad to lose them, but I was reading an article how Gene Simmons had put all his houses up for sale in California because of the tax hike. So right. maybe we should just reach out to him and see where he's going. <laughs> <laughs> he might be in Whistler you right now having a, a coffee. Like, leaving California search on YouTube, there's so many people that are like, I'm tired of this and I'm going to leave. So it's not enough just to get angry and say, bad taxes, I want to leave. It's smarter to look and say, well, where are they going to go? Right, Where and are the places that somebody like that is going to like? I've I've also heard Tennessee mentioned a few times. It seems like uh, there's a lot of Californians headed there. So interesting. We, we've also heard that we're getting some Californians, but I, I don't know if they understand our tax system. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the funny thing is they all say, you know, whichever president just got elected, I'm now leaving. I'm going to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys are probably probably further along that spectrum. Well, we, we make fun of Gene Simmons, but I think he lives in Whistler now. So yeah. maybe there's something there we should be looking into. <laughs> okay. uh, but, but that's really good advice for anyone in Canada who, who understands that maybe it's more difficult to build wealth in, uh, in a tax environment like that. But the United States has certain areas that make it easier to build wealth. So if you put your efforts towards putting a team together in those areas and slowly making progress every day, it's going to feel like you're running downhill instead of running uphill. Right, right. Well, David, how can people find out more about what you're doing and what you're up to and, and obviously your books? Uh, where, where, should they, where should they go? I'm all over social media at David Green 24 There's an E at the end of green. It's kind of annoying and people forget it sometimes. Uh, so Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all those sites. If they go to biggerpockets.com, they can subscribe to our podcast there, or they can message me through the biggerpockets.com like email system. I check that. And then I run a blog called greenincome.com where people can go read some of the articles that I've written or see some of the, the deals that I've done. So, uh, And then as far as the books go, they're everywhere. You can get those on Amazon. They sell them in Barnes & Noble. It's actually kind of cool. I just saw that they have like a Amazon Plus store or something where the top selling books on Amazon get put in those stores and both of my books were in there. So that was really cool. Do you have a recommendation where to start like for your books? Like which one Which one you'd read first? You know, the, the long distance real estate investing book I wrote first. So I would say Burr's probably written a little better. But the cool thing with long distance real estate investing is it's really a book on systems. It's not just on investing in a different market. But when you go to a different market, it forces you to have better systems. You can't stop by the house and just fix the toilet yourself, which is what you're tempted to do when you buy near you. It forces you to look for those other people. So I'd say that the, the long distance book is better when it comes to 
I'm going to get started. What systems do I need in place? What contacts do I need? And the Burr book is probably better when you say, okay, I've got a little bit of momentum going. I want to scale. This is, you know, kind of when I hit the afterburner. Right on. Well, well, thanks again, David, for your time. Obviously, you're a very busy guy. We really appreciate you taking uh, this time to speak with us. And uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you very much. And I think I forgot to mention that the new book I have coming out is for real estate agents. So if you're not a real estate agent, probably not going to make sense. But if some of your listeners are agents, if they go to biggerpockets.com slash new books, they'll see my book sold, which is the first part of a three-part series meant to help agents get their business off the ground. That's really an industry, I'm sure, if you guys have ever worked with them, that needs some help with training, with professionalism, with direction. And I'm trying to do what I can to help make it easier to find good agents because when you get a good one, oh my goodness, it makes such a big difference in how fast your business grows. Well, I think my Christmas list is done now. (laughs) 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 Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much, David. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with David Green, co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, uh, best-selling author, doer, speaker, doer of all things real estate, I would say. Yeah, and, and real estate and loan broker as well in the Bay Area. Uh, David did not disappoint. I mean, we were super excited to have him on the program. Uh, we're huge fans of David, what David's he doing. He kind of reminded me of Dustin Woodhouse in that he was walking around with his AirPods in, you know, fighting crime, doing a bunch of things yeah. while just giving super succinct answers uh to to uh, sometimes some complicated questions <laughs> very right? complicated but the questions. thing the other thing is is we we kept trying to kind of ask him stuff to throw him for a bit of a loop and and he had answers to everything right it's it's almost like he's done this before uh several hundred times so it was uh it was a really thoughtful guy and uh just so happy to have him on the program i'm sure a lot of our listeners uh and our community took a lot away from that conversation with david what else do we have for the day, Matt, before we, uh, before we check out? What else do we have, Adam? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate live. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for things like the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer with Deal of the Month. We're sending out stats, sub-market stats. These are stats that no one else has, and you're getting them before anyone else. Uh, that is with the Live Wire. We also have the Sellers Club. And a little research tool called Private Client Services. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market, basically realtor-level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's available on our site, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. One of us, either myself or Matt or Ava Benesaki, will set you up with this research tool and get you going. I'd like to just give anyone a tip. If you are an investor looking at the Vancouver market right now, you should set up an account for downtown because there are some insane opportunities downtown right now. I just uh, set one up for myself uh, just to kind of monitor because we're seeing some serious price drops. We're seeing some serious price drops. Uh, I walked through a couple studios downtown last week and uh, right. I'm, I'm, I'm getting calls from agents uh, expressing motivation levels and wow. the motivation levels of some sellers are quite high. Yeah. And you know what? Here's the thing. This is it. And we've talked about this here, but everybody is moving to bigger spaces away from the city, but the city is not going anywhere. This is the time. Everybody wished they had this opportunity downtown a year ago. We are going to be, uh, this is the moment where everybody's going to go, 
oh, yeah, I wish I bought three. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We're in it. We're yeah. in it right now. We're in it right now. There's opportunities downtown. So get in touch. And Matt, if someone wants to get in touch with you. Call me directly, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Have a great week, guys, and take care. 2,000 spaces for radio. Subscribe today.